Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. Our guest today is Jordan Rosenblum, Associate Professor and Belzer Professor of Classical Judaism at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His work is The Jewish Dietary Laws in the Ancient World. In this work, he explores how cultures critique and defend their religious food practices. In particular, he focuses on how ancient Jews defended the kosher laws, or kashrut, and how ancient Greeks, Romans, and early Christians critiqued these practices. As the kosher laws are first encountered in the Hebrew Bible, this study is rooted in ancient biblical interpretation. Rosenblum explores how commentators in antiquity understood, applied, altered, innovated upon, and contemporized biblical dietary regulations. He shows that these differing interpretations do not exist within a vacuum. Rather, they are informed by a variety of motives, including theological, moral, political, social, and financial considerations. In analyzing these ancient conversations about culture and cuisine, he dissects three rhetorical strategies deployed when justifying various interpretations of ancient Jewish dietary regulations. Reason, revelation, and allegory. Finally, Rosenblum reflects upon the wider contemporary debates about food ethics. Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies, Dr. Rosenblum. Thank you. We have an introductory question every time that asks our author to talk a little bit about their biographical background and how they came to be uh, interested in what they study. So for me, you have to go way back to uh, undergrad um, in a work-study job. I had shelving books in the library, uh, which often involved me reading more books than actually putting them back on the shelf. And um, I was working, I was taking a class um, with uh, Seth Schwartz at the time at the Jewish Theological Seminary, and I was um, trying to find a paper topic on work time. Um, and I somehow stumbled across something to do with food and started to work on it. And so I ended up writing a paper um, on prior to the Mishnah, what were the um, blessings over bread and wine and the order of it, looking at um, sources from biblical through second temple sources, and then sort of ending with what the Mishnah was sort of looking at, uh, which in retrospect was started me on this path and uh, was probably a bad idea because, as he pointed out, the course was on um, Judaism from 300 to 600 CE, and I was looking at things prior to 200. But it uh, he still gave me a good grade, thankfully, and I learned a lot about it, and I, I kind of thought about this on and off for a while. And then actually I did a master's at, at Emory where our paths crossed. And um, I, for the first time, thought about the fact that you have to get a job in this. And so uh, there was a um, interview, there, there were job interviews at the time. They were hiring um, a medievalist at Emory. And I realized the people who made the finals, I went to all their job talks, uh, had topics that were interesting to more than 
you know, one person. And they were able to connect their narrow topic to bigger questions. And there would be people from all sorts of different fields sitting around and trying to ask the person questions. And um, I had sort of a couple of ideas. And I realized that whenever I talked to people about this sort of inchoate idea about food, uh, people were being were, were interested. It was sort of the beginning of the rise of food studies. It was starting to get more legitimate. Um, and so I thought, well, let me give that a crack. And then I moved on to Brown for my doctorate. And I started, I used every seminar as a chance to write a paper on it. And what I collected was a series of papers of the completely wrong questions, which was good because then by the time I came to my dissertation, I, I thought I was left with only the right questions. Um, uh, may, maybe, maybe not, but I had, um, I really enjoyed working on that. And that, uh, that led to my first book and, um, shameless plug is food and identity in earlier Judaism, uh, available in paperback on Amazon and all discerning booksellers. Um, and in there, I was very focused on Tanaitic texts, the um, roughly third century CE uh, rabbinic texts of the first group of rabbis and how food practices were, were a part of their emerging sense of defining their self and their community. Um, and in working on that, I realized there was a lot of discussion about what the kosher laws were and weren't. And I sort of realized in writing that, in starting to talk to people about it, uh, and starting to teach about it, um, everyone knew what the kosher laws were about. Um, except the problem was is that that's not what the texts were saying. And so I started to realize that there was more to, to um, discuss there. So that led to me a few years down the road producing – um, the Jewish Dietary Laws in the Ancient World, um, the book that we're discussing, where I look at, starting in the Hebrew Bible, what does the Hebrew Bible say? And, and we'll get to that. It doesn't say much. Uh, but then there's this fascinating question of, well, what do people say it says and how do people understand it? And I felt that people were focusing on the Hebrew Bible, but missing this rich history of debate and discussion and um, and negotiation. And so I wanted to write a book about that. And that's what um, I hopefully produced. So your book is then primarily about how ancient Jews, but also other interested parties understood the nature or the justification of the food regulations in the Hebrew Bible. So this, this you talk about this as a form of ancient, a study of ancient biblical interpretation in, mm -hmm. in some sense. Maybe just to start off, can you give us a brief thumbnail sketch of what the food laws are in the Hebrew Bible and sure. where, if at all, they they do provide any sort of justification for why they are given? OK, so interestingly, there are very few food laws in the Hebrew Bible um, and they really only pertain to meat. So you have um, the main text people talk about is Leviticus 11. There's also a version in Deuteronomy, but Leviticus is the one that people talk mostly about. And that basically talks about what animals can and can't be eaten. So, for example, if you're a domesticated quadruped, if you're a domesticated animal with four legs, you have to chew the cud and have a split hoof. Um, if you're a bird, it doesn't say what the criteria are. It just lists a bunch of birds, some of which we don't even know exactly what their, by their classification is, um, that you can't eat. If you're, um, a sea creature, you have to have fins and scales. Um, there's rules for, for, um, for locusts and insects. Um, if you're sort of a creepy crawly thing, you're out. Um, and it doesn't say why the real answer it gives is because God said so. And it will make you a holy people, but why that does, um, doesn't say at all, 
But people spend a lot of time trying to say what that is, and we'll get to that, I'm sure. But then there are a few other rules. Um, one is not eating blood. And that actually gives more of an answer. It says blood is life. And I mean, I, that's pretty – I haven't tested it, but if you cut someone and they bleed enough, they will no longer live, right? So that's a pretty good equation of things. Um, but it just says pour it out like water on the ground. Um, and then there's a later on a slaughter thing that says, well, you should really do this at the temple. But if you live too far from the temple, just pour it on the ground. No big deal. Um, there's also a few other laws. One is against the sciatic nerve. And that's the only historically based one, right, where Jacob then Israel wrestles with this divine thing. And um, and as a result of that struggle, he gets renamed. Um, he gets a limp. And it's a, and and um, and Israelites unto this day um, should not eat the sciatic nerve, which I point out is actually not necessarily the most logical thing. You could say that, you know, it Jews should walk with a limp um, or they should, you know, participate in wrestling. Uh, but but it becomes a food law. But that has a um, a a particular historical connection for that. Um, and then there are a few others that I actually aren't usually lumped in, but I lump in. So for example, if you chance upon um, a mother bird with her chicks or her eggs, you have to shoot the mother bird away. Um, we can come back to that later because that's some interesting discussion or you shouldn't slaughter a parent and its offspring on the same day for animals. Um, and these, these are, that's basically what it, the Hebrew Bible says. Um, but it doesn't say why. Um, because God says so is really the answer. Uh, but that's not quite enough for later commentators, Jewish and non-Jewish. And that sort of is why there's enough, I hope, to have written a book about. So let me ask you about sort of a common uh, current academic answer to at least some of these food laws. Uh, Mary Douglas's work, Purity and Danger, Mm -hmm. Uh, is usually in fairly heavy rotation when people are asked in an academic context about these food laws. And there, uh, the argument is that the food laws violate some inherent Israelite sense of taxonomy. And therefore, yeah. because they violate that, they're considered dangerous and right. impure. You you aren't necessarily convinced or you have some reservations about this interpretive framework. Why? So... I, I should begin by saying that I don't hate Mary Douglas or her work and things. I, my, my, I think she's right, but wrong. And she's wrong because she's looking at the wrong text. She looks at Leviticus, and as other people have pointed out, it's sort of circular logic. She says, um, this is about matter out of place or things that don't conform to the system. And I know this because I'm going to create the system and then say it doesn't fit into the system that I created. But that's not what the text says at all. So I find the fact is that she fundamentally she's creating a system that the text doesn't give you enough information to do. So she, she could be right, but she could be wrong. But there's she doesn't have the data to prove it. But the thing that frustrates me is actually if she were to jump ahead, which is what I do in this book and say, OK, so it doesn't say that. But let's look at Second Temple Jews or Greeks and Romans or early Christians or early rabbis. They say Okay, so God said it, so what's the deal? And they create, if you look at Philo, we'll talk about it in a little bit, he creates a whole elaborate system. You, so what I said, I can use her, the way she's looking at things, if I look at commenting on Leviticus, 
but not Leviticus. So um, I try and have a very strong stance against her and others because there's not enough evidence in the Hebrew Bible. However, I use their insights and their thinking to help me understand later sources who try and create a system, who try and understand it that way. They're the ones that we should be using that analysis for. So I'm sort of responding to people turning to the Bible to find the absolute origin. And it's not there. There's not enough evidence. Um, uh, but there's tons of evidence about how later Jews and non-Jews understood that. And I think that is worthy of discussion. So when you move into the actual chapters uh, of the book that deal with interpretation, I notice you sort of bracket your rabbinic and Jewish readings with non-Jewish readings at the beginning and at the end. So yes. at the beginning of this, you have a chapter that deals with a broad range of Greek and Roman authors mm -hmm. looking at Jewish food laws, and particularly the pork prohibition, Yes, and puzzling over why it is that Jews uh, don't eat these certain kinds of foods or don't engage in uh, table fellowship. There's a broad range of sources here, but in general, what would you highlight from non-Jews during the Hellenistic period looking at these and trying to understand them? Okay. So yes, yeah, so it's that's sort of a weird chapter in that there's I wanted to include Greek and Roman observations, but there are not too many about that. And um, I followed what actually one of the anonymous reviewers suggested, because when I sent in my proposal, I basically said, this is how I think it's working. It's not quite working. I would love some feedback on how to organize it. And one of the viewers points was, why don't you just put all of that in one chapter in the beginning? Um, because otherwise it would be a lot like several like five-page chapters, and it just wouldn't have worked in a pure chronology. Um, and actually, that was really helpful, too, because what you find is if you put it all together, um, so let me work through it one thing. So Greek and Roman authors, they have, um, I use uh, Peter Schaeffer's um, sort of understanding of things, where they, they notice these things with um, sort of ethnographic interest, like, oh, look, Jews don't eat pig. Fascinating. Or uh, particularly the Latin satirist, or pigs don't eat, you know, Jews don't eat pigs funny and they go about that um and so you find and you find um these texts and some of them are problematic like you have a um a fifth century ce text taught, preserving a quip supposedly said about herod who lived several centuries earlier um that someone quipped apparently that herod who liked to kill family members um that it was better to be his pig than his son um and it, this is again but this sort of shows the problems of that which is funny because he killed his family but it claims that he wouldn't eat pig, although we don't necessarily know about his piety if he if he did or didn't. Um, I tend to believe that if he's willing to kill all these family members, it's not so unrealistic that he might have not kept kosher. Uh, but he um, and he might have, but we don't actually know. But that, that sort of says it's a later text by several centuries commenting on that. And it's a text in Latin talking about a pun that only works in Greek. So it shows you how complicated these texts are. But as doing that, so they noticed some of these things and they thought it was interesting, particularly with the importance of pig in Rome. It was weird. They felt that why wouldn't you eat this most amazing meat? And we even have some Jewish texts that say like Philo is like, yeah, yeah, we know it's the most amazing meat, but, you know, it's not Jews don't eat it. And we can talk about that in a little bit. But then that also gets to there's this interesting um, tradition of imagining Jews killing themselves rather than eating pork. So pork-related Jewish martyrdom. So, uh, But all of these texts are written by Jewish authors talking about this. So I began to 
really kind of get a little skeptical about it, but I put it all there because it was sort of imagining that dialogue there. Um, and I think it became a literary trope. And you have a few times where you have Ju- like the Emperor Julian mentions it, but he sort of mentions it in the past. Right. Um, and so what I think you're starting to see there is also Jews um, internalizing those that curiosity and imagining and using that to talk about other issues of domination, um, as in um, Rome taking over Jews, um, diminutive Jews and, and to in destroying the second temple and that as exerting authority and imagining that when that happened, um, a pig was slaughtered on the altar and use, and then, or Jews were forced, forced to commit, uh, to either eat pig or commit suicide. These complicated texts, but they're imagining those encounters. Um, so, um, these are things that it was sort of hard to figure out where they comfortably fit, uh, but putting them in that chapter sort of highlighted a, some of the historical problems with that, but it was also good to have that in the beginning because it starts to show the background against which Second Temple authors and then um, early Christians and ancient Jews are, um, are situated. And then the, about the last chapter being about the Church Fathers, it was also, it, one, it was about the chronological order of things a bit, but also then it provided a reflection because what the Church Fathers did is very different than what the Tanim and the Morium did. And that, to me, was a way of highlighting that difference and thinking about why Christians through their own theological interpretations of for them, the old Testament um, understood things which were different than the rabbis, which for them was the Hebrew Bible and how they understood things. So it became a way to sort of reflect on what I was seeing in the Jewish data. So one of your larger chapters looks at sort of Hellenistic Jewish authors and the rise of what we might call uh, the rationalization of the food laws. And so, uh, some really famous texts here. You look mm-hmm. at the letter of Aristeas, or Pseudo-Aristeas, as uh, some people call it, and then uh, you dive into Philo of Alexandria, which is no small undertaking. So what what do you glean from uh, looking at these Hellenized Jewish authors trying to understand these prohibitions in the Torah, or these food regulations in the Torah, in light of a larger uh, cultural value of reason or rationality? Well, well, so first I would say, um, to go back to the Douglas thing, one of the more frustrating things for me of her abominations of Leviticus um, work is that she, for like a second, mentions Philo. And that's why, because Philo is actually would be so great for her. And so Philo is, um, I mean, he's 50 pages of absolute boredom, followed by like one paragraph of brilliance. And so um, the... I slog through, that's a beast of a chapter because there's a lot out there. And I really wanted to, part of what I was also trying to do was show as many of these texts as possible to, to people to sort of, um, to, uh, on the one hand, I'm advancing an argument, but also I'm trying to also do sort of a collection of some of the data for this. And to show, again, this becomes part of my critique, how systematic he was in working through these things. So Aristeas has some very similarities with that, but it's much shorter. Um, Philo is huge. Um, you know, a, a popular um, translation of him is small print, two columns to the page, front and back, like over a thousand pages. It's, it's voluminous what he wrote. Um, and he has tons to say about food. And so for him, he develops a whole system. So, for, so for example, the Hebrew Bible says um, domesticated quadrupeds, chew the cud, split hooves. That's what you got to do. Philo says, well, why is this? Well, chewing the cud is a good is is symbolic. Now we're moving to allegory um, of of um, 
symbolic of a good learner. A good learner takes in the knowledge, chews it, masticates it, swallows it, then regurgitates it and chews it over again. And so if you eat an animal with chewing the cud, you're internalizing, you're being embodied by proper learning techniques. A split hoof represents the path of virtue and the path of vice. So um, you can choose one or the other for him. So he sees these as embodying those. He also believes, by the way, that the law should be literally followed. But that's just hoi polloi. Everyone should do that. But only the true smart people like him know that there's also this allegorical level, which also there's another text I should mention of his, which connects to something I should have mentioned with the Hebrew Bible. One other Hebrew Bible law is it says, don't cook a kid in its mother's milk. It says that three times. Now, what that means, most people jump to the rabbinic interpretation. However, Philo is a very different interpretation. He reads that literally. It says, don't cook a kid in its mother's milk. And that means baby A, cow A, no. Baby B, cow A, go to town. So a cheeseburger would be totally appropriate biblically for Philo. And there's this beautiful text where he talks about, look out into the fields. You see tons of cows and goats and sheep. What kind of a jerk would you be to go find a mother and say, where's her baby? I want that milk, that baby in my mouth now. Right? His point is it's so easy to avoid it. And how impious would you be? How cruel would you be to actually go out of your way? So for him, it's very literal. And that's a great moment, too, because it fits with his um his idea of the law must be followed. The law is rational. He's trying to also show how how uh, biblical law and Jewish law is the most rational, the most Greekly rational text. Um, uh, but he also shows an ancient Jew who read, don't cook a kid in its mother's milk, as literal, which destabilizes a sort of normative reading of how the rabbis read it. We'll get to that in a little bit. They read it as all meat and all milk. Um that destabilizes that and makes us realize that that's not necessarily the most natural reading. It's one possible reading. It's not necessarily the most natural. And Philo, in typical Philonic fashion, goes on a while about it. Um, and so he, what he do, he works through all of these rules, and for him, everything is reasonable and rational, and is an allegory for virtue, for vice, for proper practice. And this is him showing that the law must be literally followed. This is also going to be a difference of how he's different than early Christians, right? Because it must be literally followed. Um, whereas when Clement of Alexandria um, comes along, he's going to say, you know, you understand the, the lesson so you can eat the meat, just don't act like the meat. So you can eat pig, but don't act pig-like. For Philo, you can't act pig-like and you can't eat the pig. So he, he it's important for him that this is a logical system. So this is where I say, Douglas is really helpful. He builds an entire system. This is very much structural anthropology could be useful here because he's building a structure. So, um, and he writes a lot, which is why it had to be a long chapter. And, um, that was, that was a difficult chapter to write, but I think necessary to, I thought about cutting out some of those texts, but I think it's actually important to see, um, how structured and clear it is because I think that sets up some of the differences we're going to see in early Christians and Greek uh, and, and, and early rabbis. Well, in, in comparison, the chapter that follows it on the New Testament is relatively brief. Oh, very and brief. sort of uh, 
what how did these early Christian authors who are still sort of in a transitional period arguably between their their older Jewish sources and its emerging non-Jewish Christian uh, communities how did they imagine the debates around food laws and food regulations uh, with regard to the earliest Christian communities or the person of Jesus himself so first I, I sort of separate out gospels from Paul right um, and the interesting the gospel depictions are very so it's interesting because you have so someone like John Dominic Croissant who come in and say, look, this open commensality. Anyone could sit at Jesus' table. This is radical. The only problem is, is Jesus is never described as eating with anyone who's not a Jew, right? Problematic Jews, socially, so, social status issues, but Jews. Jesus is also never described as not eating food that would be biblically appropriate, right? So he, that the, the character of Jesus is described in the Gospels follows Jew, Jewish practice, right? And so much so, for example, when the Pharisees come along to complain about some, not all of his disciples and not Jesus in this, not washing their hands. This is not something I wrote about. This is something I'm working on now. Not washing their hands according to Pharisaic law. They're not, they're not faulting Jesus with this, right? So they're imagining almost that he's engaged in some of these practices. So first we have to see that he doesn't have that. And there's one potential line that seems to say that he implies that, but there's fairly good scholarship that suggests that this one sentence is added later to 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 fix to fix something. And this is the example I give to students too. It's like this is why I, you don't use I try and I tell them not to use Wikipedia, right? Because they could write their paper, say that what they said was on Wikipedia, but then go back and edit the Wikipedia page to say what they said, right? So um that's sort of what happened there. Um so first you have the fact that Jesus was a Jew who's criticizing Judaism from an internal way. And his food practices are one way of showing that Paul is a different situation because for Paul is, is struggles with the, is this an internal Jewish um, community or is this a community that should also be preaching to Gentiles? And he decides the latter. And so he starts to talk about how those food rules should be understood. He criticizes um, Peter, you know, with all sorts of different names um, about, his food practices. Um, he also talks about, um, he has a don't ask, don't tell policy about meat. Like you shouldn't eat idle meat. You shouldn't eat meat that's been strangled. But if, if you don't ask, you just assume, right? Um, so he starts to move in a direction that's slightly different, but that also signals broader theological assumptions. The food and the interaction with understanding of dietary laws point in different directions. He's moving in a different direction than we see in Jesus and the Gospels. But where we do start to see some potential um, discussion of these things is in commensality laws, which I've sort of mentioned, the idea of eating together. And that's where some of these rationalizations seem to come because they start to say, well, eating shared food in a shared community builds communities and not eating shared food in a shared community also destroys other communal possibilities. So there begins to be a recognition of that. And I see that as the beginning of inheriting some of that, uh, which is noticed in starting in Second Temple text, but really explodes in early Christian text and um, rabbinic text. And so it's starting to see that. But the other reason it's a short chapter is you can't ignore what the New Testament says. But actually, it says very little. And in fact, a lot of Jesus, uh, Paul's debates about weak and strong could be read as actually philosophical debates that have nothing to do with food. 
Um, and I have a footnote about that. So I point out where I out on the side of let's talk them through because some, because it has been a dominant way of viewing it. Uh, but if you, um, I, I sort of have a cheeky note where if you accept, um, some criticism of that, it shouldn't be viewed that way. The chapter that was very short should actually have been even shorter. Well, you then turn your attention to sort of, uh, in the, in the post, uh, destruction period after 70, these earliest sort of emerging rabbinic, interpreters the the tanaim mm -hmm. they sort of turn their back on this entire project of trying right. to rationalize the food laws or suggesting that there could possibly be any rational basis for the food regulations right. uh, sometimes quite forcefully why do they do this and how do they make sense of these rules in the absence of an attempt to rationalize them right so um so as I was completing this book, I had the, the wonderful and awful experience of um, going to a conference and meeting a scholar who is much more senior than I, who's, who had just published a book that made arguments very similar to, to I did. And this was Christine Hayes's um, Princeton University Press book, uh, What's Divine About Divine Law? Um, you know, I made my presentation and she said, you know, I agree. Uh, you should really read the book that I just wrote that came out that I'd heard of. Right. And so I, she was very wonderful and generous. And then I went back and I read her book and I, I, I was um, both um, upset and relieved at the same time, right? Because we talk about some of the same texts, which is, was good because she, uh, she, I still had enough time to sort of nuance what I was saying, but actually we, um, I view our books as, um, in isolation ended up actually supporting each other because she was making a larger point about, um, how, um, divine law is justified. And she makes a larger point about how actually the rabbis reject rationality. So there's a second temple tradition of doing it, but they do that by saying, God says so. And that should be the point. And they're rejecting this broader notion. Um, and that was perfect because that's what I was saying on a very small level. And now I could say, here's someone more accomplished and smarter than I who's saying it at the big level. And I can incorporate some of her, um, her thoughts on that. So what I was finding was that the rabbis were, were very much saying, no, no, God said so. So, for example, I mentioned the um, you chance upon a bird's nest and you shoo away the mother. And you um, then you can take the eggs and chicks. Now, many commentators say, oh, this is about mercy. And as some biblical, uh, some modern scholars have pointed out about that, uh, the biblical text is, mm, well, number one, it doesn't say the word mercy. Uh, number two, the mother bird is still coming back and discovering her children missing. Right. So how merciful is that? You know, um, so that's a, a harder cast to make. But the rabbis say, if you say this is about mercy, you are to be silenced. So there's no more. Um, I found it hard to find a clear statement that says this is not about mercy. You should not read it that way. Right. Um, and so I agree with Christine Hayes's large argument. And that I was making sort of more narrow thing. The rabbi said, no, no, no. The, God said so. So they focused on how it needs to be done, spelling out the legal minutiae, not why it should be done. Why should it be done? Because God said so. So since God said so, how should it be done? How long should the knife be that slaughters? How should slaughtering occur? Could one pause or not pause? What is the upper or the lower limit um, of the throat that one should slice? They go through a whole series of procedural questions, not about the question of should it or should it not be done. So the subsequent 
rabbinic tradition then embodied in uh, the next sort of generation of rabbinic authors, the Moraim, they never really returned to a any anything like a reason based system yeah. for justifying these laws. They they deepen the divine uh, fiat sort of mm-hmm. model for this. But occasionally they do start to slip a little bit, right? And and to ask certain questions that would not be asked during mm-hmm. the earlier rabbinic period. So how do they think about these uh, laws? What kind of questions do they begin to ask about justification? Right. So I think they, well, they inherit what the Tanyim say. They inherit what the earlier rabbis say. And they agree with it. You do it because God says so. It's submission. To, this should sound a little like Islam, I hear, right? But it's submission to God's will. And that's what you do. In doing it, you submit to God's will because God said so. And that's their understanding of it, right? Um, so they very much advance that. And that's the vast majority of texts. However, you get a few inklings of the fact of, well, I know God said so. Maybe there's also a logical reason to this. You know, maybe God has some logic, right? And so although uh, the Amorim are where you start to discover the idea of they're dividing um, uh, biblical text into two categories of um, of law, uh, Mishpatim and Chukim and Mishpatim right, are, um, are biblical laws with a basis in rationality, like don't kill someone. Sorry, don't murder. Killing is a killing is maybe potentially allowed. Like kill, it, murder is unjustified homicide. So don't murder someone because unjustified homicide is not good for societies. Um, things don't do well, and so there's a logic to that. You don't there's you don't have to say don't murder people because God said so. There's also a logic to it, and then there's hukim, um, which they understood as unjustified divine commandments that must be followed because God said so, and um, the pork prohibition is one example they give. So they have that, but they also, there's also the idea that, well, but there's also could be reasons for it. And I actually think part of the reason is, look, it's not, if uh, why observe Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement? You can kind of get away with saying, because God said so, if it's once a year. But if you're going to eat, um, which to live you have to do fairly regularly, um, you're going to encounter this regularly. And so the the God said so thing makes perfect sense within that system, but I think it also makes sense to question that a bit. And so you start to see the beginnings of that. So, for example, in the discussion of the world to come, this this time in the future when the the, the wrongs of this world will be righted and the rights of this world will be made even more right, um, they sort of say, well, you know, the idea is by eating this way, you're going to merit entrance into the world to come. Actually, one of my favorite texts of that says, well, you know, actually, if you don't eat pig in this world, it's going to be kosher in the world to come. So do you really want to eat? You know, you can have it now or you can have it in the world to come, which is sort of that, you know, that delayed gratification of the famous the psychologist, the marshmallow test. Right. Do you want it now? Or, and um, and so they say also, this is why Gentiles can do it, because Gentiles are not going to merit entrance into the world to come. And they, they have a wonderful parable of a of a doctor with two patients who are sick. One is going to die soon as a terminal illness. Say, Eat whatever you want. You know, you don't have to worry about calories if you're not going to be around next week. Uh, but if it's something you're going to heal next week, you know, you, you might want to watch your cholesterol. So. um 
their understanding then it shows that there can be a rationalness, even though even within that you see, well, why does that lead to this? There's still a what God said it did. But there's a creeping in of that. And actually, if I were to extend this to medieval or modern times, uh, which I don't because I professionally find medieval and modern times much less interesting, you know, um, the um, you'd see an explosion of this. So, for example, um, Ibn Ezra writing about why uh, p- pig isn't allowed will say like, you know, um, oh, oh, why meat and milk, sorry, isn't allowed, uh, is, 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 should be separated. First, he says, you know, God said so. The reason is hidden from us, but it could be. And then he supplies all these. There's different cooking times of meat and milk and um, combining that doesn't taste good. He gives several other logical reasons. Right. So you start to see that in later texts more and more. Um, and then you'll see this in um, uh, German reform. Jews start to turn to health and hygiene as reasons so because that's um that's a, a turn towards using those things, which is in line with the, their contemporary values. So you're seeing a layering on of that. But for the Amoraim, they're still sticking to the God said so, but they're willing to venture out a little bit. In your last chapter, then, you look at the early church fathers, mm-hmm. particularly because they sort of form an anomalous group. These are people for whom the texts are authoritative. They are believed to be divinely inspired. And yet practice has diverged significantly for theological reasons right. from a plain reading of the text. So they have a different location and they have to right. explain these food laws in essence. So they can explain why they're not bound by these food laws any longer. Exactly. What, what do they say? So this is um, I've, I found this I also found this this material really fascinating because first you have to start with the fact that um, there was a debate in early Christianity of was were the Old Testament I'm careful here to say when I'm talking about the rabbis I talk about Hebrew Bible when I'm talking about the early Christians I talk about Old Testament because if you're an early Christian you assume there's a New Testament so it's, I try and stick to that nomenclature and there's some other technical differences but um, there's a debate in early Christian communities. Um, were the Old Testament food laws always an allegory and not to be understood literally, or were they to have been followed literally? And then, then um, there's a new understanding that comes along post Jesus. Um, I sort of mention that, but say actually, for my purposes, it's irrelevant because at the time the early church fathers are writing, it either was literal but no longer is, or never was literal, so it still isn't. Right. So from their perspective, it, it does the it doesn't matter because it no longer is. Right. Um, but for them, it's still in the Old Testament. It's still binding. And so, but it becomes um, a way of it needs to be interpreted um, in line with larger understandings of ritual law. Versus, and, and so spirit of law versus letter of the law. And they say you're reading it wrong. If you look at at um, Leviticus 11, when it says don't eat pig, it doesn't mean do not eat the pig. It means do not act like the pig. And by and so if you do not act like how the pig is, you do. And or, for example, they read it when it says these are the birds you shouldn't eat. They read it, these as being birds of prey, which, by the way, is also how the rabbis read it. Um, and so for them, they say birds of prey snatch things and they lead a life of robbery and thievery. You can eat birds of prey, you just can't act like one. By the way, this understanding has a modern um, resonance too, because some people will respond to some um, 
there's a, there will be some liberal responses that look at um, uh, some uh, evangelical Christians who will say who will denounce homosexuality based on Leviticus, but will then go to you know a crab shack and eat crabs. And they'll say, oh, look, you're a heretic. You know, you, you don't even understand your own text. You're, how can you agree with one portion of Leviticus and disagree? And I say, you know, I, there's a political statement you could be making. But as the scholar, I say you actually don't understand the way that biblical interpretation works because there, there is a practice of selective literal and allegorical reading. Yes, but there's a long venerable history of that. Um, and so, and, what you'd have to understand is though the food laws there are not understood as literal laws. So one could eat tons of crab and not act like a crab. Right. So, um, and so to me, that understanding is actually quite important to see that these laws are understood very differently. And as I said, I, it, it, not only chronologically, I, think I like at the end because it casts light on how the rabbis understood things, right? The rabbis it literally must be followed because God said so. And since it wasn't literal, it was allegorical, the church fathers had to turn towards why then. They're not interested in how anymore, they're interested in why. The rabbis are how because they're not interested in why. But if you're not interested if in the how, then the why is what you are interested in. So there becomes a long history. And there's some really fascinating texts where they try and lay out things. And as I said, there's some fascinating parallels to Philo, for example. But for Philo, it begins with the assumption that the law must literally be followed. Early church fathers do not have that assumption. So where do you go from, from here? You mentioned at the beginning that you got interested in this, uh, in thinking about, in some ways, the job market, right? And how you have topics or issues that are of broad interdisciplinary interest. So having done this specialized work in ancient Jewish interpretation of food laws, who's who's interested in being in conversation with you and what departments are they in and what kind of questions are they asking and what do you think your work has to offer those bodies of scholarship? The answer is, of course, is uh, less people are interested in having a conversation with me than I am with them. But um, going forward, this I, I, a few years ago, um, when I was working on my first book, um, a rather persnickety um, senior colleague asked me, um, so how long are you going to keep working on this food thing? And my answer was, well, as long as I find questions that interest me. But also it's always been – for me, food has always been a way to um, ask questions about um, about community formation, about biblical interpretation, about um, development of comparative law and religion. It's, uh, ask big questions. Um, and it's just been my lens. I also find it funny that um, when I started working on this, uh, my advisor was um, rightfully concerned that was – food studies and a food angle a little too ahead of the curve, you know, for a dissertation. Um, and um, we decided together that no, if it's done the right way. Um, and then recently someone said to me like, Oh, you know, food studies is so passe. Uh, I had this moment of thinking like, I, so I was ahead of the curve. Now I'm behind, but I, at no point was I, did I know I was relevant? Like I, I missed my moment. I've never, I, I've never been there. So, um, one thing is food studies. I'd love to talk and engage more with food studies people. I'd love to um, engage more with rabbinics. In some ways, that's been successful in that um, I haven't published really in food studies areas. I've published in more traditional um, ancient Judaism and rabbinics um, arenas. 
And that, and so in some ways, my, you know, my books and, and my articles will get footnoted, but more along the lines of just, you know, this is normal stuff that people work on. Um, so I like still talking to my ancient religion people and particularly my ancient rabbinics and early Christianity. But again, this is me trying to venture out a bit more to second temple, biblical, early Christianity people, more so than my first book, which really focused on early, um, Judaism. Um, but I, I want to continue asking these questions, you know, um, and there I'm, I've, I'm getting interested in beverages now because I've really only written about wine, but there's tons of other things on other beverages. Um, I, um, two and a half years ago, I, I had a child and that made me think that I had been writing about food for years and never thought of breast milk as a food. So I ended up, um, doing, um, this is an insight into me as a person, right? Is, uh, um, we have a child and my wife starts breastfeeding and I immediately think, well, what are the, what are the, what does the Talmud say about this? What does the Mishnah say about this? And I start reading sources and I said, this is fascinating. Um, I made the mistake too many times of trying to come home um, and tell my wife what I had been uh, learning about the ancient rabbis. And um, I was informed very clearly uh, that it's a good thing that I love the rabbis. And, you know, um, but that's also, you know, like, the, and then I started to think, well, what have scholars said about this? There's got to be uh, great things. And I started reading it and I realized, wow, people either ignore this or there's really bad scholarship on this. So I ended up writing a, um, a very long article that's coming out um, this summer about that. Uh, but where also I point out that, you know, I, I'm going to stand forward and say I'm just as guilty of this. I didn't um, think about that as a food item. And that sort of reifies a bias um, that renders women invisible, that renders children invisible. And so um, I can't critique others without saying that I'm just as guilty of it. But hopefully as we, you know, as you continue to research, you realize the areas that you're not aware of. Um, I mentioned I'm doing some work now on hand washing. I hadn't really thought about that. Um, so there's still so much for that. But again, I'm trying to look outward. Um, I have an article coming out about um, fowl and milk, uh, which I briefly mentioned a little bit about in there. Um, but it says don't cook a kid in its mother's milk. But what about fowl? There's an interesting history there. So I still want to continue. I, I still have a lot of ideas about um, these ancient texts um, in regard to food and what they tell us about the rabbis. Um, and ancient Mediterranean um, religions. Um, and I just want to keep going with that as long as um, people will, you know, the one or two people who read my articles will continue to read them. Well, thank you. This is once again, uh, Dr. Jordan Rosenblum and his book is The Jewish Dietary Laws in the Ancient World. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me.